Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 2nd, 2017, the cut, cut, cut edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in Washington, D.C. With me in the D.C. studio is CBS's John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. Hello, John. Hi. And from New Haven on the campus of Yale University is the New York Times Magazine's Emily Bazelon. Hi, Emily. Hi, you're like punching out your nouns today. Are you going to keep doing that? Should I? I keep, I'm going to, what did I punch? I punched magazine? I don't know. <laughs> I'll be, I'm pretty punchy. On this week's Gab Fest. Okay. <laughs> this okay. could become unbearable. This could yeah, be unbearable exactly. really quickly. quickly. Okay. Could, it just could though. We're not there yet. On this week's Gab Fest, the Mueller investigation draws first blood. What do the indictments of Gates and Manafort and the guilty plea of George Papadopoulos portend? Then will the GOP's enormous tax cut plan get anywhere? And what's in it? Or what will be in it? We'll find out. Then, can you believe that we have to discuss whether Robert E. Lee is a great American hero or a traitor? And whether a failure of both sides to compromise causes of a war, yes, we do have to discuss that. But fortunately, we will have America's greatest civil war historian, David Blight, in to help us figure that out. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And before we get going, reminder, we have a political GabFest live show in Boston on December 6th. You can get tickets to that at slate.com slash live. And of course, they might be giants are going to be accompanying us for that and opening and joining the show. And we are now starting to collect your conundrums, which will be the basis of the show. That will be the foundation of the show. Please start sending them to us. We've already received a few of them. I'll read a couple that we got. Would you rather put clean clothes on your dirty body or dirty clothes on your clean body? Which is a really good question. Would you rather never be able to leave the U.S. for the rest of your life? Or would you rather travel wherever you want but never be allowed to return to the U.S.? But please send us your conundrums. You can do that by tweeting them at us at at SlateGabFest. You can post them on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash GabFest. You can email them to us at GabFest at Slate.com. Any of those methods. We want to hear more from you. And please do come to our show if you can make it in Boston, December 6th, Wednesday at the Wilbur Theater, slate.com slash live at 7.30 p.m. Robert Mueller, the special prosecutor in the, I don't even know what this investigation is called, the Russia campaign collusion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, investigation, fired his first shots on Monday. He indicted, mm, thank you, good, good sound effects, John. <laughs> He indicted Paul Manafort, former Trump campaign chairman, and Manafort's deputy, Rick Gates, on a series of money laundering-related charges. Later the same day, after the White House had, had wiped its collective brow, thinking it had ducked any campaign collusion charges, Mueller also revealed that George Papadopoulos, a foreign policy aide to the campaign, had pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI over his contacts with Russians seeking to sway the election. Papadopoulos also, uh, judging from the 
uh, news released appears to be cooperating or to have been cooperating with the investigation. So who knows what that means or what that will result in. So Emily, what is the purpose of these indictments as far as we can tell? Well, I mean, the purpose of the Manafort Gates indictments is to punish people who it looks like, or according to the indictments, were um, bringing in a lot of money from working with people abroad, violating the foreign, um, what's it called? Foreign Agent Registration Act, FARA, this uh, law that's kind of been dusted off as a way of trying to make sure that we know who is lobbying and who is paying for lobbying in this country. And then there are all these money laundering charges that go along with these violations of FARA. You know, the Trump administration and Trump himself took a victory lap because most of the allegations in the indictment predate the campaign. But I don't think it was a coincidence. It can't possibly be a coincidence that this secret guilty plea by Papadopoulos was unsealed on the same day because the Papadopoulos plea is very much about the campaign. It kind of adds to this picture that we increasingly have of the Trump campaign being eager to have meetings with Russians or Russian agents that we're going to talk about, as Papadopoulos said, dirt about Hillary Clinton. And so, you know, I feel like we've now had collusion it used to be that like that everyone defending Donald Trump in the campaign would say absolutely not no collusion happened how dare you even suggest that now we're at the point of well collusion isn't a crime and essentially like yes we were colluding in the sense of having these meetings having these communications but nothing came of it and so far there's no proof of a kind of smoking gun quid pro quo like a trade to change the republican platform and its position about russia's moving into the ukraine so i feel like that's sort of basically like the bars moved but we also have this tantalizing set of possibilities out there about what else papadopoulos has been able to give the investigators in return for this plea and this question of whether he's been wearing a wire and how plugged in he was to higher ups in the campaign. John, the media has been out of its mind over these cases. It just the, the coverage of it was extraordinary Monday. Do you think it, when we look back, this will be Something that was merited. Are, are people is is the media interest in this commensurate with the actual importance of it? Yeah, I, it's a. I think it's a really good question. I think at the moment it's a little overheated. In the end, which isn't to say that uh, this may not all lead to a blazing fire. If they uh, find a um, an audio recording of the president saying collusion today, collusion tomorrow, collusion forever, uh, then then any amount of coverage would be warranted because you're talking about a president of the United States. The charge here is, and in this scenario, it would be affirmed, uh, you're talking about the president colluding with an enemy of the United States, an enemy that the previous nominee for the party fingered as the, the chief geopolitical threat to the United States. Um, however, we don't we ain't there yet. And in fact, for all of the hunting, 100 people interviewed by the Senate Intelligence Committee, nobody on the Senate Intelligence Committee thinks there's collusion. They think there's some smoke. There's a, more smoke now than when before they interviewed 100 people. But if you've interviewed 100 people, you, and you're hell bent for collusion. You've got to be disappointed that you didn't that you're not any closer than you already are. Now, 
the Senate Intelligence Committee is not the same as the special counsel. And clearly in the Manafort indictments and in the plea deal, the special counsel's office is everything that our modern moment is not. It is thorough. It is quiet. It is painstaking. And it's not operating on Twitter. And so if anybody's going to find anything, it's going to be them. Just a final point is that you had these two meetings, Papado- or the two events, Papadopoulos and then the president's son, son-in-law and Manafort meeting with the woman Russian lawyer who was advertised as coming with dirt from the Russian government. Whether she had it or not is different, but they were certainly anxious to take a meeting with somebody who said they had dirt provided by the Russian government. If those two things happened, it would be very surprising that in a shambolic operation, which this was, that there would be no other anything, that it would be just cauterized to those two things. Now, maybe it doesn't go on and blossom into the full scandal of the president's greatest critic's imagination, but there's got to be something else, and and Mueller seems on his way to finding that. Emily, the one of the worries about Mueller and his defenders and his, his advocates is that there might be a crisis that would come if the president attempted to fire him. The president didn't. There's no evidence that the White House has made any moves in that direction. Do you think that Republicans in Congress would, in fact, attempt to stymie the president from getting rid of Mueller? And also, can he get rid of Mueller without getting Rosenstein to do it? That second question, we don't totally know the answer to since we haven't really been in this situation before. But it looks like the answer to that, at least to me, is no, that the statute runs through um, the statute for the special counsel runs through the Department of Justice. And since Rosenstein is the um, person in charge of overseeing or supervising or however you want to like think about his kind of off to the side but superior position, it seems like he would have to do the firing. Okay. So the Congress, I mean, look, if John McCain and Jeff Flake and Bob Corker and Orrin Hatch added his voice this week about protecting the special counsel, and also it sounds like Hatch is probably retiring. If these people are worth anything in terms of the principles they've been espousing about um, their concerns about the president and the kind of state of, uh, you know, Trump's influence over American politics and all the problems they see and the risks, then this is like the hill for them to die on. I mean, this is American rule of law. This is making sure we understand what happened with Russia's attempt to interfere with our elections. And it's, you know, a kind of replay of our Nixonian moment in 1973 in which like the center held and the government and in fact, the president was bound by the rule of law. So I would hope that those Republican senators and a lot more Republican senators would see their place in history in that same light. Um, But I don't think it's like a done deal that they're going to do this. And the fact that their proposed legislation to protect Mueller's role has now just sort of like fallen by the wayside is uh, not super promising. John, what do you think about this part of the picture? The Congress stepping in and making sure that uh, Mueller doesn't get fired part? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and if, also that. Bl- well, right. Then we talk about blanket pardons, which are another right. part of this. It makes a, you make a you put your finger on the right in the right place. We've seen t- two things. One ext- extraordinary thing that I've been thinking about a lot um, in the um, 
in the course of the whistle stop I did this week, it's a podcast on the presidency, if you haven't heard, um, is that <laughs> this is Donald Trump's party. It's and the tax cut we're going to talk about in a minute cements this so that Corker and Flake are actually being driven out by a, a kind of soft purge. And anybody else who doesn't um, hew to the president's protection not his policies, because there is not really, a, I mean, there's some policies, but it's really too, if you're not on Team Trump, then right. um, the president or Steve Bannon is coming after you. And that's not just fealty to him, obviously, it's fealty to the power that he has over Republican voters. And while the president is deeply unpopular in the nation, he's still quite, quite popular in the Republican Party, and particularly among those people who are going to turn out and vote. So the one place where you've seen something other than extreme fealty has been when the president has gone after Comey or Mueller. And all that has happened is people have just not joined him in that. It is not that they, and then to the extent that they've been asked, they've had to say, yes, Robert Mueller is an honorable person, but they have not defended Mueller against, by and large, have not uh, rushed to Mueller's defense. So to have the kind of break where they would really break from the president would have to come from yeah. from leadership. It wouldn't have it couldn't be the usual suspect. And 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 I I mean I think what to me uh indicates that there would be that wagon circling John is is what's happening in conservative media. I am frankly right. totally confused by all the uranium one steel dossier Mueller must be fired stuff. It it's all I can't tell what is there. It's just completely foggy to me and i'm sure that's i know that's my failure not a failure of those stories i'm sure they're very good stories but there's so much chaff being thrown up at around this that makes me think that people are setting the stage if Mueller is can for there to be at least some kind of credible argument to be made about it and that plenty of conservatives uh both legislatively and medially are happily making those arguments Right. right. And it's all connected, right? Because the popularity of Trump within the Republican Party is tied to how Fox News and other right wing media outlets cover all of what you were just describing and and also the Republican establishment, you know, and leaderships, right? It's like these three parts of the triangle and they're all related to each other. And so until one breaks, it's hard to imagine the other two changing. And it is hard to imagine the Republican leadership, which is so beholden to the political reality being the first to go. But one thing, though, about how it has to be the leadership, I mean, couldn't four or five Republican senators join with the Democrats and but do something? What, what would they no, do? What do they do? I'm not sure exactly, I guess. what. They so do. they have to, it has to get on the floor in the Senate. So you could right, block it that they, way. And also the House, you know, you'd have to get the House to go along. Just to David's point, um, particularly on the question of the dossier, I think the things to keep in mind is obviously, as David said, there's an, there's a, an effort to equate sort of say, well, Hillary Clinton's lawyer paid for or his law, her law firm paid for the Steele dossier, um, and therefore this is the same. First of all, that was a huge development last week and shouldn't be ignored. And so Clinton campaign is on the hook for that. Her lawyer, who was at the table when John Podesta said, I don't know who paid for the dossier, the lawyer knew he paid for it. The fact Mark that he didn't, Elias. Mark Elias, the fact that he didn't say anything, whatever, that he's got some splaining to do. And so the dossier, it was created with the help of, I mean, there's information in there that comes from the Russians. There's plenty of explaining for the Clinton campaign to have to do. What is different, it seems to me, or what is different, is that what the, the Clinton campaign was doing was low road, slimy political op uh, opposition research which, as the president said, all campaigns do. What the president's campaign did was, um, at some level, 
consort with people who had done something illegal, which is hacking into emails. We don't know what they did with this information. So far, there's no evidence they did. They, they weaponized it within the Trump campaign. But the legal versus illegal is one part. And then the second part is all we know now on the Clinton front is that the lawyer was given this slush fund. Or I think we know this. The lawyer was given this slush fund. There's no evidence that the the candidate and the top echelon, the chairman and so forth, knew what that the steel dossier was being put together people may not believe that but at the moment we don't have proof of that what we do have proof of in the in the trump campaign is you have the chairman the son and the son-in-law all going to a meeting where the lawyer was advertised as coming with dirt from the go- russian government those are some important and distinctions there's also another mind. big distinction that i've noticed which is that donald trump is the president yeah and hillary clinton is not the president <laughs> right, right and right, and like right. there is just this way in which you decide yeah. we're going to spend our energy focusing on the people who matter and have power what, you know, if Hillary Clinton committed a crime, I, she, she should be prosecuted. But as a matter of national importance, it is much more important whether the person who is our president is a criminal than it is important whether a person who is not our president is a criminal. And if he became president through and if he criminal, became, activity. Through criminal activity. I mean, yeah. John, you wanted to add something else. Well, I want to just um, associate myself with something Emily said, which is that we should remember that the original position of the Trump administration campaign going for the president to Kellyanne Conway to, to Vice President Pence was that there was no collusion connection at all, none whatsoever. So now there have been at least two instances. It does not mean, again, that you have a blazing hot fire uh, with all of this smoke, but it does mean that when they make further assertions with the same declarative oomph, that people are not crazy to be skeptical of those assertions. And that's um, uh, really worth emphasizing, I think. Okay, let's leave it there. Slate Plus members, you lucky dogs, you get a special Slate Plus segment every week. And today's segment, we're going to be talking about the punishment of Bo Bergdahl, the sergeant who was held captive in Pakistan and Afghanistan for five years. So we'll talk about that on Slate Plus. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to sign up. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames in the notes that I have here says moms like aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frames so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for mother's day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Congressional Republicans were supposed to unveil their tax bill on Wednesday, but pushed it back a day because of problems getting the math and the policy to align. As we tape on Thursday morning, it appears that the House bill maybe has been released, or at least parts of it are being discussed. I see a bunch of it 
being yes. discussed. John. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's uh, coming through uh, in in. Um, so it's come out on Thursday ish. There are leaks from all the uh, or to, to the various news alerts that are coming in while we're recording the show. And this is the House bill, Senate bill. Yeah, is the House version of yes, it. yes, yes. So what's the latest? <laughs> what do we actually know now that it's actually happening? Well, one thing that's interesting. Is that apparently they're proposing the House Republican leaders are proposing a cap on the mortgage interest deduction so that um, you can cap basically it's capped at five hundred thousand, which means if you if your home if you're uh, well I guess that's if your home mortgage wow. interest is that I wonder if that's for so for mortgages five hundred thousand or less so if you own a house that is that or if you have a mortgage on a house that's over five hundred thousand then you're not going to be able to there will be some limitation right now there is a duck the, the interest isn't it now a million it's now a million it's now a million so it's now to five hundred so this is on the side and there's also reporting that the top tax bracket um they were flirting with the top tax bracket that they now are and that it'll be all the way up at thirty nine six for the very wealthy on the so this presumably is for two reasons one uh to find some money because one of their problems is that they are not only able to they're not only not able to deal with the existing debt but they also are trying to fill the whole the 1.5 trillion dollar hole created by the tax cut itself and so things are coming in and out of favor in order to fill up that 1.5 trillion dollar gap and these two things which would go to tax the wealthy so uh, if they benefit slightly less from an overall package from which they benefit right. a great great deal well it depends how you decide some benefit so like if obviously if you're going to benefit from the new for the removal of the estate tax some wealthy people who will benefit from that will benefit a great deal others who are wealthy may not benefit from that because they're already under the 11 million dollar cap which but would most make you of still the gains from slashing the corporate tax rate from 35 to 20 percent go to wealthy people as well it depends yes I mean so it would not go... that every wealthy person gets it but most of the gains right go to well that's people. the and that's the point is whether the distribution over the wealthy is um, and it also depends how I mean you could imagine a benevolent corporate response to the reduction of corporate tax rates which could be they could plow all the new savings into wages which is a which is um, a, a debatable a proposition but also the the premise upon which the tax cuts are being sold so there'll be limits on the deductibility of state and local taxes it appears to be about ten thousand dollars is the limit there uh, there's gonna be a raising of the child deduction so if you have kids you'll get to deduct more they're gonna lower the pass-through Income rate, which is so complicated, and actually, which I want to get to because it it shows exactly it why this is not tax reform. There's no simplicity being added to the tax code with this bill. It is just an enormously complex new twist where, depending on what kind of work you do, yeah. your pass through rate is 25 percent or 35 percent or a blend. And that's one that will people who are in law firms that set themselves up this way, who will be wealthy, will benefit from uh, that reduction, and those who have the income where it'd be worth paying an accountant and a lawyer to create a pass-through will do so, uh, creating, as you say, David, more complexity in order to take advantage of this rate. And uh, so that's a way in which it would benefit people with with more means and create more complexity. Emily, okay. President Trump reportedly wanted to call this the Cut, Cut, Cut Act. One version I saw was that it's going to be called the Jobs and Tax Cut Act. <laughs> Is this a tax reform or a tax cut if it goes through. I mean, it's a tax cut and it's a tax change. But I think for the reasons that you just said, the idea of simplifying the tax code so that we can easily file our taxes on one piece of paper without messing around, worrying that we've screwed it up or hiring accountants, that seems like 
a receding mirage into the distance that is not what this is going to produce. Here's a, just a political thing that that I'm curious about. If I'm and there's some polling to back this up, but if I'm in if I'm the Trump voter, if I'm uh, when I hear corporate tax being cut, and this is the first question when I was with um, Paul Ryan at a plant tour in Pennsylvania when he was first selling this, the first question was, how's this going to help the middle class person and their paycheck? And he has to basically make a two-beat explanation. Cut corporate rates and that savings will be plowed into wa- – will be put into wages. So that's a theory. There are a lot of economists who believe that theory doesn't hold, but there are some who believe it will, that that's what corporations will do, that they will they will put it into wages instead of putting it into buying back shares, putting it into plants investment or all kinds of other stuff that doesn't affect your paycheck. But I guess just as a political matter, do, do, do people hear, oh, corporate tax rate? Yeah, OK, that's good for me. Like I don't – there's no polling to suggest they do. And when you try to explain it, it relies on a benevolent and perhaps totally justified but benevolent view of corporate behavior at a time where people don't believe in institutions. Don't they not believe in corporations as institutions and therefore why are they going to think, oh, yeah, sure, this corporate tax reduction will come back to me? Right. No, it's very weird. I think you're exactly right, John. And one of the problems that I find with this whole exercise is that it's actually not a cynical exercise on the part of – Republicans, it's a, it's just an idealistic but highly ignorant one that they have a very limited prism. I mean, I think Ryan and his accolades about economics and they have a single theory and that single theory is you lower the tax burden and that unleashes economic activity and that benefits everyone. The problem with it is that, it, that the way they propose to do it, actually, there's no evidence that that's the case. Businesses are already sitting on tons of cash that they're not plowing into wages that they're using to buy back shares or they're using to, you know, store off in overseas accounts. I mean, they're not they're not investing it in their workers. And there's also no evidence that rich people are not working hard because their taxes are too high. There, and there's no evidence that the estate tax is causing a crisis of 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 people, you know, not putting their money to work or not working or, you know, lazing off. There's there's not there's no evidence of that at all. What there is tons of evidence of that poor education, poor infrastructure, health insecurity, you know, retirement insecurity, low wages are undermining the economy. This is a solution to not the problems that actually seem to be affecting the economy. And that's what depresses me so much about it. Right. It's dogma, right? All the waves of evidence we have that cutting taxes does not Uh, Cutting taxes on the wealthy does not trickle down, does not have the supply side effect that it's always billed as having. Like how many times do we have to go through that exercise before we rid ourselves of that? It's just – it's such a dearly held belief. It seems like there's just nothing that can shake it. But the primary – if in fact they're keeping the 39.6 rate, then the old view that if you – don't lower marginal rates for the wealthiest. You're going to do what David said, which is get rid of the incentives. So it seems that if they're leaving at 39.6, they're buying what you say, David. Well, so no, but they're making all these other changes. I mean, the rich actually don't care because most rich people don't get most of their income through from wages. Yeah. Through wages, they get it from other sources, in which this bill is massively helping people. Well, and they're really depends. good at figuring out how not to pay that high a tax rate anyway, because they're the ones who hire all the lawyers and accountants. Right. But the, I guess the primary theory here is not the trickling down of benefits that result from lowering marginal interest rates. What they're pushing here is lowering the corporate rate will lead to this change in behavior by corporations, right. which is a different set of arguments. Well, there's fair that- enough. But doesn't it seem like a similar set of arguments, like just sort of repurposed with like a different 
right? I mean, is it really that different or is it just that now we're talking about corporations instead of the wealthiest individuals? I guess economically, I'm out of my depth on which one is less plausible um, or more plausible. But it does seem to me that it's a harder sell. It's definitely hard to sell. The it's definitely hard to sell. But, but they're also doing it with personal. They, that's what the estate tax right, situation but again, is. But and that's estate what tax the, affects like 5,000 people, which is a different argument uh, against it by some. But my point is it's not a – it's not like a marginal rate reduction would benefit all people of a certain income the estate tax only benefits a small number of people, so it's harder. Yeah, to, but a small number of people with individual states uh, above five, right, and you're, that's above a, ten. But my right? point is, but it's sort a of different in principle, right? Right, but it's yeah, a different but, argument. It's a different argument. Yes, it's helping the the super wealthy, and so it it has to it has to wrestle with that notion. But if we're trying to decide whether this tax cut is in the traditional Republican lane of cut everybody's marginal tax rates, it's not. It goes to a too small a group of people. Uh, so there was a quite brilliant piece by Jason Furman, uh, which I think was in Vox, and a, and a former colleague of his, Jason, is a uh, was the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. He points out that when we think of tax cuts, I think people think tax cuts, my tax were cut. That's great. I have more money. But all tax cuts are paid for some in some fashion. They're either paid for by cuts in spending, they're paid for by increases in other taxes, or they're paid for in increased government borrowing, which raises – interest rates, which lowers, raises everyone's cost of borrowing, which lowers GDP in the long run. When you look at these tax cuts, even if you as an individual household may get uh, some more money in your paycheck, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are benefiting because it may be the government programs that you depend on are being cut or, or economic activity that you would benefit from is going to be slightly lower than it would be. And Jason's analysis points out that under any under any kind of reasonable look at the various different versions of what Republicans are proposing, the overwhelming majority of Americans are worse off and the vast, the overwhelming share of gains is going to the few at the top. The household tax burden for people may rise or fall, but that they're going to suffer because overall U.S. economic activity is going to be down later and because the government services that they depend on are going to be cut. And I found that just a really interesting and persuasive. And it's so rare that we look at tax cuts through the lens of how the total impact on the economy rather than just the individual impact on your household income in the next month. Right. It made me realize how totally incomplete my usual picture for all of this yeah, is. I mean, there's me an too. amazing chart, right, in Jason's article where you can see exactly how all of these costs and benefits, the full picture, are going to impact different income brackets. And it's heavily tilted toward the wealthy in this way that then just starts to seem incredibly daunting because you realize that what Jason's trying to take into account are all of these short to medium term impacts when we usually have a much narrower lens. John, what procedurally do Republicans need to do to get this bill passed? And what's the fallback? If they don't pass it. If they don't pass something if they don't well, pass yeah, yeah i don't know what's the what's yeah, the plan b so we'll get a score with that that's another thing that'll be important here is we'll get a score and then the question will be from cbo and joint tax and then the question will be how will the supporters of this bill respond to the scorekeeping done by the congressional accountants and will they believe it they'll start talking about budget baselines and say yeah it's one trillion but 500 billion of that is just a baseline issue and then a trillion and will be you know joint taxes too conservative so the, it's fine we're not we're not going to have any deficit and debt impacts at this if joint tax comes back with an even worse number they may very well go to something else and say yeah joint tax says this but joe's house of economic scoring says we're going to have 
sunshine and roses all day long in the future. And the reason that matters is it's just a kind of it's one of the many tells for whether the political push here, which is to just pass something, anything to get a win, has totally overtaken reason and process. Now, the question is just how much more they'll override it. So that's an, a thing to watch for beyond the question of just who votes yay or nay. On Monday, White House Chief of Staff, retired Marine Corps General John Kelly, declared that Robert E. Lee was an honorable man who gave up his country to fight for a state. It was the lack of an ability to compromise that led to the Civil War. The lost cause narrative of the Civil War has reemerged, wearing General Kelly's dress uniform. Trump's America, or some portion of America, maybe it's not Trump's America, is fully engaged with the idea that Confederate generals were heroes, the war was a tragic mistake caused by a failure to compromise, and that General Lee in particular was a lion rather than a traitor. Here to discuss this strange state of affairs is Yale history professor David Blight, my favorite Civil War historian, also the author of a forthcoming biography of Frederick Douglass. Hello, David Blight. You're in New Haven with Emily. Good morning. Thank you. Um, yes, he is in here in New Haven with Emily. That's right. Hi, Emily. <laughs> with me, that would be. <laughs> so I'll take the first question, which is an easy one. Why uh, is it? <clears throat> by the way, I'm, I'm still here, too. All right. Sorry. Go ahead, okay. David. So let me tee it up, David Blight, with a very easy question. Why is it ridiculous to say that the Civil War was caused by a failure to compromise? Kelly's expression the other day is rooted in a very old notion, completely caught up in the culture and spirit of reconciliation that came out of the late 19th and early 20th century, that um, nobody really has to be responsible for that civil war. It was just a misunderstanding among honorable people, but the fighting of it was great and noble. And hence the idea of an honorable Robert E. Lee. Uh, yes, a great soldier, um, in many ways a great tactician. You know, that could be debated endlessly and has been debated endlessly. But uh, Robert E. Lee chose, in effect, in an illegal sense, he chose treason. He chose, yes, he did choose his state over his country, which is what Kelly said. And frankly, to me, the most disturbing part of Kelly's comments was not only this idea that, well, the Civil War could have just been prevented, but it was this idea that the norm, he said, was to choose your state over country. And a reporter just the other day, among the many who called about this, asked, well, what would you say to General Kelly if you could talk to him? <laughs> I said, well, I'd ask him if he'd ever been to Gettysburg. Has he seen the Gettysburg National Cemetery? Does he believe all of those northern men died for their states? And has he read the Gettysburg Address? What did Lincoln call it? He called it a nation. They didn't die for their states. They died for the country. And the idea that the, the you know, four-star general who was, wasn't he commander of the Marine Corps? I mean, um, it shows us how much the lost cause tradition still has a hold on a huge swath of American society. That idea of reconciliation, um, give us a, a little more on that, because it was kind of a joint project for reconciliation in some ways, wasn't it? Oh, sure. If, if by joint you mean North and South. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it, it didn't happen quickly. The idea of blue-gray reunions was not an easy thing to pull off and until the 1890s and then turn of the 20th century. 
But the lost cause tradition, its arguments about um, the South not really fighting for slavery, not being truly defeated on the battlefield, of, of fighting for localism and, and state sovereignty and home and homeland, these are all deeply sentimental and quite romantic ideas that uh, have a, almost a universal appeal. By the turn of the 20th century, even in the 1890s, some of the most popular writers in America, in fact, the most popular writer in America in the early 1890s was Thomas Nelson Page, Virginia-born author of endless stories of faithful slaves, loyal slaves, uh, and he had a massive northern audience. His publishers were in New York. Uh, he did Ch Chautauqua tours. He would perform these uh, vignettes and these stories of faithful slaves in dialect. And the majority of his readers were northerners. And a lot of northerners bought in, not a majority necessarily. We don't have any polling data on this. But huge numbers of northerners by, by the let's say, the era of World War I particularly – had bought into parts of this lost cause argument. And part of it was a way that you could reconcile a nation that had been so horribly divided. How do you reconcile a country that has to put itself back together? You can't throw all the losers into exile. Well, you can try to do it, uh, as other cultures have, around um, the mutual valor of soldiers, the nobility of soldiering. And that's where the Robert E. Lee cult does come in. By the 1920s, Robert E. Lee was as important as a national hero, almost as much as Abraham Lincoln. In fact, there's a famous essay that W.B. Du Bois wrote, uh, at that time editor of the Crisis Magazine, the great black scholar. I think it's 1922. It's the year the Lincoln Memorial is being unveiled, but Du Bois writes this piece about the cult of Lee. He can't stand it anymore. He hates this idea of the nobility of a Robert E. Lee. He calls it nauseating. And he wonders how in the world a culture could fashion Lee as an equal hero to Abraham Lincoln. Uh, but what he was complaining about was a, was a broad, broad reality. Um, without a certain degree of northern uh, consumerism of the lost cause, uh, and complicity with the lost cause, it could never have become this kind of national tradition. And let's remember, General Kelly grew up in Boston. He's not a Southerner. So so that, I, I keep thinking about race in all of this. I mean, it seems sure. like this is a reconciliation project among white people, a kind mm -hmm. of coming back together mm -hmm. after a regional split. And that that alliance is a kind of, if not natural one, like a preferred one. But I mean, I'm glad you brought up Du Bois. I had no idea about that essay. But that fits at least with my sense that this is uh, that the lost cause narrative just kind of erases the experience of black people. And that Kelly's notion that this was a widely shared conception at the time also erases freed slaves uh, and the did, black populations what, of southern states, which Ta-Nehisi Coates tweeted about. Emily, too. Sorry, just wait, as you can I just add to that yeah. the great 
did you see that great thing that Laura Ingram said something about how many Southerners opposed the the Civil War? It's like, well, <laughs> maybe every African American mm-hmm. slave opposed the Civil War, but like that she was making the point. Oh, no Southerners opposed the Civil War because she was writing slaves out as Southerners. Anyway, continue. Your yeah, point. I, no, exactly. I just feel like that is so much a subtext for this whole conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, whose yeah. consciousness about mm-hmm. the war counts and. I also feel like every generation gets the Civil War, like, that that fits them somehow. Sure, and sure. it also has to we do with— We choose the one we want. Right? Like, it's where you grew up. So my mom grew up in Baltimore, and she says that she was taught the Civil War as stopping at Gettysburg, that mm. the South never lost right. in, the, the, like, 1863 was the— Right. Right? right. And, I mean— I think I was taught the Civil War much more accurately, but I do remember watching Gone with the Wind as a child, which is like a deeply lost cause, valorizing, romantic. I mean, it's horrible and racist in its depictions of slaves. But in its Um, sentimentalism. Absolutely. Almost irresistible. Almost irresistible. Especially then, but still. Right, but still, (laughs) exactly. Although I've chosen not to show that movie to my own children. seems unhelpful for that very reason. (laughs) But I just wonder if that's part of why these comments feel so, at least to me, so corrosive and destructive. Because they're at a moment where you just feel like the country is so divided by race Mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. And that to Mm -hmm. have Kelly kind of show up in the story with Trump as a figure of division uh, and as this military yeah. figure is so yeah. wild. Corrosive is a great word because sometimes we, you know, there are a lot of cliches about how we use history. We use history to understand the present. You know, we don't want to repeat it and all of that. But narratives of the past, versions of the past, especially the big, big stories here, like why did we have a civil war and what did it mean? It's about as big a question as we have about American history. How we tell stories about that defines us. And if we keep recycling the ideas that Kelly expressed and that have come out in the wake of Charlottesville in our endless discussion now of monuments, if we keep recycling these old notions that it was really just a misunderstanding and that all sides were noble, it does corrode how we can even have a faith in knowledge itself. You know, I mean, one of the, the only good news in this is that more and more historians are constantly being asked to comment on this. Now, of course, for some people, I mean, in Trump's base, whoever they really are, that to them is the problem because we're all a bunch of elitist liberals in universities and we've been spinning these stories for years and years and years, which were not the stories of their grandfathers. It's the old, old problem of the conflict of history, good history versus memory. But what, but what Kelly stood there and said is this old, recycled memory of the Civil War that has almost nothing to do with three generations of scholarship and even popular history. I mean, Jim McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom has been read by millions. It's not just a scholarly book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so David, as we look at the people who hold this view, and obviously uh, General Kelly is the focal point of this conversation, I mean, how much is it a failure of history, a failure to um, upend the narratives that were pushed by a nation for a long period of time with the new scholarship of the last three generations, uh, and how much of it is the way it's sometimes portrayed, an active choice, sort of as if you know both histories and you're choosing the one that is <laughs> more preferable to the people in your region or your club or whatever it is? I wish I had great polling data on that. I don't. Nobody does. 
question. I keep saying to the more and more I get asked about, you know, for example, Trump's ignorance about history. Uh, it's always worth remembering that the root of the word ignorance is ignore. And I think particularly educated people who end up saying the kinds of things Kelly said have chosen that narrative. They've chosen that narrative. They've had other options. They've had the option to be educated better. Hopefully, we, we would like to think that. By and large, though, the average American citizen who's not an academic, not a teacher, and is only a, an occasional reader um, rarely makes choices about historical narratives or they get it through family. They get it through region. They get it through popular culture. They get it through media. They get it through churches. Everybody out on every street outside every building we're in is walking around with a sense of history in their head. They are. How did they get it? They got it by all these means. Then they encounter school. Then they encounter maybe college. And we like to think that we're having a great impact on them. We're not, by and large. There's far, far more memory than there is the history we write. The, the task, the great challenge now is the challenge of public history. It's for academic historians. It's for those of us who really are trained to do this, to get out in front of the largest possible public we can reach by whatever means we can reach them. And what I what sinks up so uh, strongly for me in what you've just said is that a lot of the people in this in this monument debate feel it in a way that connects very much with what you've just described, their culture, their churches, their family, that if this narrative is received through those channels, that when you want to change it, you're changing something that is not just something you learn on a blackboard in school. It has a closer, it's, it's in your bones in a way that's different than just kind of uh, abstract history. Yeah, I mean, I guess the way I'd answer that is uh, there's been a lot of talk about how the Sons of Confederate Veterans Organization uh, is planning, and, and they do have a lot of money. They got a big donor. Uh, they're planning to have to build their own museum, apparently, in yeah. Tennessee, not too far from Murfreesboro, where they recently had another white supremacist march. But I actually am for that. If the Sons of Confederate Veterans can raise their 10 million bucks or whatever it takes to build their museum and they want to make it a shrine to their ancestors uh, and to their great-grandfathers and then maybe it even becomes a, a museum, the narrative of which is repulsive, that's their right if it's on private land. Let them do it. Let them act it out. Now, if it becomes a shrine to white supremacy and it causes – a political crisis in that region of Tennessee or if, you know, if it becomes the place that people gather to organize vicious attacks on other people, that's another matter. But, you know, let them have their space to go do ancestor worship because they're going to do it anyway. Surround them with good history, but let them have their, their little secular church if that's what they need. Sure. One of the um – pieces of kind of recent Civil War uh, history that's gotten attention in the wake of Kelly's comments is Ken Burns' Civil War documentary because Shelby Foote is on camera oh, yeah. and is given a lot of uh, time on camera to right. tell the kind of story right. I think that Kelly was telling. And I wonder what right. you think about that. I mean, we right. mostly revere that documentary, and yet uh -huh. it seemed to have sort of opened the door to yeah. reviving this oh, yeah. particular interpretation, right? Well, in fact, it's Huckabee Sanders, right? The press spokesman who brought up Shelby Foote. <laughs> She's not alone in a 
big swath of Americans who still look to Shelby Foote for their Civil War history. Ken Burns used Shelby Foote in a very artful way in that documentary, if one thinks back to it. He is the central talking head narrative voice. There are a lot of others, but he is the central one. And Ken knew what he was doing. He, he puts the central narrative, first of all, in that, that incredible Mississippi voice. And Foote can come across as both an American patriot and a Confederate patriot. He's both. He can wax on, and he does, about Nathan Bedford Forrest and how many horses were shot out from under him, and he may just have been the greatest general ever. And then pretty soon, you're interested. And yet at the same time, Foote almost starts weeping when he talks about Abraham Lincoln. And he does the same with Lee. What more could you ask for? than a great Mississippi narrative voice telling that reconciliation story. And that, that a Huckabee Sanders, wherever she gets her history, or anyone else just wants to refer to Shelby Foote speaking in Ken Burns' film, there it is. It's national reconciliation through feeling good about the Civil War. But one last point on that. I mean, Ken Burns is a brilliant filmmaker, and the recent uh, Vietnam series, I think, from what I saw, is the mature Ken Burns in Full Flower. God, did he find the voices in that film. But in the Civil War series, he also played a few tricks on us. If anyone has not seen the final episode of the Civil War series, if you're, or even if you've seen it three times, go watch it again. Because Ken found, and it was irresistible to a filmmaker, he found that, that existing footage of the 1913 Gettysburg Blue-Gray reunion. And it is irresistible footage of these old, grizzled veterans shaking hands on stone walls. I mean, it's gorgeous stuff, you know, when you can show it. But the trick that he played is he uses uh, Joshua Chamberlain and Wendell Holmes and others saying what they thought about that great reunion. And then he shows at the very end a black veteran and a white veteran shaking hands. At the very end of the film, that footage came from 1938. Oh. It's not 1913. That was the 75th reunion, which was because the black veterans weren't even allowed a place at, at the, the 1913 <laughs> was a Jim Crow reunion. God. But he didn't tell us that. So, I mean, which is really the point. Right. Jim right. Crow was the master of ceremonies, if you like at that 1913 reunion, which is what I argued in my book. Ken did some, some interesting editing there. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's a otherwise very important film series. But yeah, Shelby Foote is, what he did with Shelby Foote is he planted the flag in the border states and he said, look, we got to reconcile this Armageddon. We got to get over it. Let's look at it through the blood and then let's get over it. And the film ends, of course, with a very brief, quick look at Reconstruction, hardly any. And you just speed to the 50th anniversary Blue-Gray reunion. I see. Because Reconstruction would have been too problematic oh, and complicated too. for that narrative. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> so, David, uh, one last question. You mentioned that you're hosting a conference about the parallels between uh, the 1850s yeah. and today and the disunion that emerged in the 1850s. I'm sure because you're doing a conference, there's, you could talk about it for hours and hours. But what's the what's the one minute conclusion about what the key parallels are and how worried should we all be? 
Well, we're going to try to find that out in the next two days with about 24 historians and journalists and political scientists. Well, look, it's, it's an attempt to do some good history about what happened to the United States in the 1850s. Why did we, why did our political parties tear themselves apart? Why was nativism so important? Why was slavery and race so important? Uh, what were the shocking events that made everybody change their views, uh, such as Dred Scott or John Brown's raid? And then why did the union fall apart then? And what can we learn from that process that helps us understand all of this polarization and potential disunion? that we're living through now. It is not to suggest with this conference that analogies are direct. They never are. In fact, analogies are dangerous sometimes. But look, everyone is asking, how can we understand this political moment we're in based on our history? And so we decided about nine months ago to try to have this conference. So we're gonna have one eye on the past, Actually, an eye and a half on the past and a half an eye on the present. <laughs> I, I want so bad. David and I are just I sitting like, here going, like, why can we not go to this? Yeah. Thing? Emily, you should I know. Yeah. I'm like looking at the poster, which I David know. brought a copy We're of. We're going to live stream me. it on Facebook. Are you? Really? Oh, oh. Yeah. You, David, I'm not sure how that's done, but I have people who do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were both just here. I was like, well, can I book tickets? Sure. Come on up. In looking at history and probably the Civil War above everything else, there's a, always this debate about how to judge people in their time and, uh, yeah. and so forth. Can you just talk about that briefly and add this to it, which was there were people in their time who had the right view. I mean, and just when we think about who to raise <laughs> monuments to, I mean, who had the right view about the ownership of other human beings. Yeah. That seems to me to be um, something that is worth raising a monument to. But anyway, I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that briefly before we let you go. Well, there are very few monuments to the great abolitionists, to, 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 now that you ask. There are now 12 monuments of Frederick Douglass uh, statues. Uh, that's, that's an interest, and they've all gone up in the last decade. There's one or two of William Lloyd Garrison, et cetera. Uh, we don't have the national memorial to the abolition movement. We might think about that. That, one could argue, ought to be on the National Mall. So, you know, how do we judge people in their own context? We do it with humility. In fact, you know, humility is not a popular notion right now. It's hardly in vogue. Uh, in our 24-7 news cycle, you don't get anywhere on humility. But what, <laughs> but what the monument issue needs is, is deliberation, humility, and more history. Because judging how people made decisions about what to memorialize on their landscape in the past is a dangerous idea because we will all be judged ourselves. Imagine the people writing about this moment right now since Charleston, not just since Charlottesville. This two, three-year segment here of our history will be judged by people in 25 years and in 50 years, and who knows what they'll be saying about the choices and decisions that, that we've made in, in our own political culture. But inevitably, we judge. Of course, we judge. Uh, the task of a historian is to do your homework, do your research, and then make a judgment. David Blight, Yale University historian, come back and report on how that conference went. Oh, I'll be, be happy to. to hear. If we get any wisdom, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are pondering the fate of your Union or Confederate ancestors, wondering, wondering what they would make of what's going on in the country today, what will you be? chattering about to those ghosts, Emily? 
Next Tuesday is an election day, and in Philadelphia, the voters will be electing a new district attorney. This is because the um, former district attorney in Philadelphia, Seth Williams, was indicted and then convicted and is actually going to prison for five years on bribery charges. Um, This DA race in Philadelphia is fascinating and kind of wild. The Democratic nominee, Larry Krasner, is a defense attorney, civil rights lawyer who has basically spent his whole career suing police departments um, and defending people. He's never been a prosecutor. Um, He's favored to win. Philadelphia is a heavily Democratic city. His opponent, Beth Grossman, the Republican, um, is a career prosecutor. She helped run the Civil Asset Forfeiture Fund in Philadelphia, which has been a big mess. Philadelphia has a huge, and I would argue bad, history of stripping people's assets before conviction. And there's been a recent news story that um, the DA's office and the police department were using this asset forfeiture fund as a kind of slush fund, buying lots of like fancy equipment and fancy cars and topping off people's salaries. So Beth Grossman has that in her past, but she is a traditional prosecutor. And Krasner is absolutely the opposite. And if Krasner wins as expected, it will be the most dramatic example of a very different model for a district attorney in a big city. And it will be really interesting to see what happens. You know, from the point of view of the police and some prosecutors, this feels like a hostile takeover. But Krasner's promising, like, you know, to end bail, to really change how charging and plea bargaining takes place. Um, Just a whole roster of changes. And I'm really going to be watching with bated breath to see how this all plays out in my city that I grew up in. John, what is your chatter? Uh, One of my favorite things is little pockets of discovery that are found in the past that um, just come out of nowhere because it always makes me feel like there's more of these yet to be found. Anyway, since we have had David Blight on, who um, sounds to me like Harrison Ford, uh, (laughs) this is a good chatter. This is incredible. It's it's really – anyway, but it also because I had his lectures in my head for that – long, long, long period of time. It also, anyway, I'm having those echoes, but back on track here. Scientists have discovered a room inside Egypt's Great Pyramid of Giza. And it's the biggest, apparently the biggest discovery since the 19th century in the pyramids. And the way they found it was they used cosmic ray imaging. Pew, pew. What they did was basically- your sound of the day. Yeah. So it's coming back. Basically, I think the way this works is the imaging records the behavior of subatomic particles called muons that penetrate the rock. They go through the rock, go through the rock, go through the rock. But then they stop when they hit something harder, I believe. And so what happened was they shot a bunch of these things into the pyramid and they discovered that they stopped in this- 30-meter void in the pyramid. And so the thought is that it might be the tomb of King Tut's wife. So I'm not sure. Actually, I don't – hold on. Sorry. Strike that. It might not be what they think. Something else. Sorry. (laughs) It might be. Uh, Sorry. It might be. (laughs) This huge breakthrough. I don't know what's in the box, but I guess they're going to go find out what's in this void. And it's incredibly thrilling. And I hope we all learn soon what's in there. What's in the box, John? My chatter is about a new magazine. It's called Paul Ryan, the unofficial magazine of Paul Ryan. And a set of comedians or comic writers have compiled a massive 
magazine, which is really a pastiche. It's sort of Paul Ryan as Sports Illustrated, Paul Ryan as N plus one, Paul Ryan as uh, Men's Health, Paul Ryan as People magazine, Paul Ryan as a, one of those kids as a highlights magazine, Paul Ryan as an alumni magazine. And so they have different magazines, each of which is making fun of the House Speaker. It is, it's uneven. There's like really funny things. And and uh, then there are things which are not so funny, but it's extremely ambitious. And I think you should take a look at it. It's available both online and you can buy a physical copy for $21.99. But there's a lot of it. His cover is Paul Ryan naked, which is weird. Look at that, John. It doesn't really look like Paul it Ryan. It doesn't really look like Paul Ryan, yeah. but, um, but he is incredibly fit. So and there's Paul Ryan in People magazine. So before we get to the credits, I want to tell you about a new podcast from Slate, El Gabfest en Español. It is Slate's first Spanish-language podcast. It's led by award-winning Mexican journalist, broadcaster, and writer Leon Krause. It is going to discuss the news of the week in Spanish. Panelists will include Fernando Pizarro, the Washington correspondent for Univision, and Ariel Mutsatsos, the Washington correspondent for Noticieros Televisia. Excuse my poor pronunciation. The emphasis is going to be on U.S. politics and current events, but they're also going to discuss international news and sports and culture. And there's going to be an English language segment for Slate Plus listeners, which is the first topic reconsidered in English. The November 9th show, so the next show they're going to do, the guest is going to be Univision anchor Jorge Ramos, the legendary, the legendary Ramos. This is exciting. This is a new thing from Slate, and I hope it reaches a great new audience. So you should check out El Gabfest en Español. That's our show for today. The Political Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Izzy Road researches the heck out of it. You should follow us on Twitter at Slate Gabfest. And remember to send us conundrums. So, for example, here's another conundrum someone sent us. You can, you can do as well as this or better. Would you rather stop aging at 30 and live 30 years or stop aging at 70 and live 70 years? John is John startled. We'll, 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 we'll discuss we'll it discuss on the, at the show. Uh, no, but, I just had an immediate response. But. Uh, so follow us. Uh, send us your conundrums at uh, on Twitter, at Facebook, and the email, gabfestatslate.com. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, David Plotz, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>